Strange Pages from Family Papers by T. F. Thistleton Dyer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how to volunteer, please contact LibriVox.org. Strange Pages from Family Papers by T. F. Thistleton Dyer. Chapter 11 Weird Possessions. But not a word o it. Tis fairy's treasure, which, but revealed, brings on the blabber's ruin. From Massinger's Fatal Dowry From the earliest days a strange fatality has been supposed to cling to certain things, a phase of superstition which probably finds as many believers nowadays as when Homer wrote of the fatal necklace of Eryphile that wrought mischief to all who had been in possession of it. In numerous cases it is difficult to account for the prejudice thus displayed, although occasionally it is based on some traditionary story. But whatever the origin of the luck or ill-luck attaching to sundry family possessions, such heirlooms have been preserved with a kind of superstitious care, handed down from generation to generation. One of the most remarkable curiosities connected with family superstitions is what is commonly known as the Colstone Pear, the strange antecedent history of which is thus given in a work entitled The Picture of Scotland. Within sight of the house of Levington, in Haddingtonshire, stands the mansions of Colstone, the seat of the ancient family of Colstone, whose estate passed by a series of heirs of line into the possession of the Countess of Dalhousie. This place is chiefly worthy of attention here on account of a strange heirloom of which the welfare of the family was formerly supposed to be connected. One of the barons of Colstone, about three hundred years ago, married Jean Hay, daughter of John, third Lord Yester, with whom he obtained a dowry, not consisting of such base materials as houses or land, but neither more nor less than a pair. Sure such a pair was never seen, however, as this of Colstown, which a remote ancestor of the young lady, famed for his necromantic power, was supposed to have invested with some enchantment, that rendered it perfectly invaluable. Lord Yester, in giving away his daughter, informed his son-in-law that, good as the lass might be, her dowry was much better, because while she could only have value in her own generation, the pair, so long as it continued in his family, would be attended with unfailing prosperity, and thus might cause the family to flourish to the end of time. Accordingly, the pair was preserved as a sacred palladium, both by the laird who first obtained it, and by all his descendants, till one of their ladies, taking a longing for the forbidden fruit while pregnant, inflicted upon it a deadly bite, in consequence of which, it is said, several of the best farms on the estate very speedily came to the market. The pair, tradition goes on to tell us, became stone-hard immediately after the lady had bit it, and in this condition it remains till this day, with the marks of Lady Brune's teeth indelibly imprinted on it. Whether it be really thus fortified against all further attacks of the kind or not, it is certain that it is now disposed in some secure part of the house, or, as we have been informed, in a chest, the key of which is kept secure by the Earl of Dalhousie, so as to be out of all danger whatsoever. The coalstone pair, it is added, without regard to the superstition attached to it, must be considered a very great curiosity in its way, having, in all probability, existed five hundred years, 
a greater age than perhaps has ever been reached by any other such production of nature. Another strange heirloom, an antique crystal goblet, is said to have been for a long time in the possession of Colonel Wilkes, the proprietor of the estate of Balafletcher, four or five miles from Douglas, Isle of Man. It is described as larger than a common bell-shaped tumbler, uncommonly light and chaste in appearance, and ornamented with floral scrolls, having between the designs on two sides upright columelli of five pillars, and according to an old tradition it is reported to have been taken by Magnus, the Norwegian King of Man, from St. Olav's shrine. Although it is by no means clear on what ground this statement rests, there can be no doubt but that the goblet is very old, after belonging for at least a hundred years to the Fletcher family, the owners of Balafletcher. It was sold with the effects of the last of the family, in 1778, and was brought by Robert Caesar, Esquire, who gave it to his niece for safekeeping. The tradition goes that it had been given to the first of the Fletcher family more than two centuries ago, with this special injunction, that, as long as he preserved it, peace and plenty would follow, but woe to him who broke it, as he would surely be haunted by the Ehanian she, or peaceful spirit of Bala Fletcher. It was kept in a recess, whence it was never removed, except at Christmas and Eastertide, when it was filled with wine, and quaffed off at a breath by the head of the house only, as a libation to the spirit for her protection. Then there is the well-known English tradition, relating to Eden Hall, where an old painted drinking-glass is preserved, the property of Sir George Musgrave of Eden Hall, in Cumberland, in the possession of whose family it has been for many generations. The tradition is that a butler, going to draw water from a well in the garden, called St. Cuthbert's Well, came upon a company of fairies at their revels, and snatched it from them. They did all they could to recover their ravished property, but failing, disappeared after pronouncing the following prophecy. If this glass do break or fall, farewell the luck of Eden the Hall. So long, therefore, runs the legendary tale, as this drinking-glass is preserved, the luck of Edenhall will continue to exist, but should ever the day occur when any mishap befalls it, this heirloom will instantly become an unlucky possession in the family. The most recent account of this cup appeared in the Scarborough Gazette, in the year 1880, in which it was described as a glass stoop, a drinking vessel, about six inches in height, having a circular base, perfectly flat, two inches in diameter, gradually expanding upwards until it ends in a mouth four inches across. The general hue is a warm green, resembling the tone known by artists as brown-pink. Upon the transparent glass is traced a geometric pattern in white and blue enamel, somewhat raised, aided by gold and a little crimson. The earliest mention of this curious relic seems to have been made by Francis Douce, who was at Edenhall in the year 1785, and wrote some verses upon it, but there does not seem to be any authentic family history attaching to it. There is a room at Muncaster Castle which has long gone by the name of Henry the Sixth's room, from the circumstance of his having been concealed in it at the time he was flying from his enemies in the year 1461, when Sir John Pennington, the then possessor of Muncaster, gave him a secret reception. When the time for the king's departure arrived, before he proceeded on his journey, he addressed Sir John Pennington with many kind and courteous acknowledgments for his loyal reception, regretting at the same time that he had nothing of more value to present him with as a testimony of his goodwill than the cup out of which he crossed himself. He then gave it into the hands of Sir John, accompanying the present with these words, 
the family shall prosper so long as they preserve it unbroken. Hence it is called the luck of Muncaster. The benediction attached to its security, says Roby in his Traditions of Lancashire, being then uppermost in the recollection of the family, it was considered essential to the prosperity of the house at the time of the usurpation that the luck of Muncaster should be deposited in a safe place. It was consequently buried till the cessation of hostilities had rendered all further care and concealment unnecessary. But unfortunately the person commissioned to disinter the precious relic let the box fall in which it was locked up, which so alarmed the then existing members of the family that they could not muster courage enough to satisfy their apprehensions. The box, therefore, according to the traditionary story preserved in the family, remained unopened for more than forty years, at the expiration of which period a Pennington, more courageous than his predecessors, unlocked the casket, and, much to the delight of all, proclaimed the luck of Muncaster to be uninjured. It was an auspicious moment, for the doubts as to the cup's safety were now dispelled, and the promise held good. It shall bless thy bed, it shall bless thy board, they shall prosper by this token. In Muncaster Castle good luck shall be till the charmed cup is broken. Some things again have gained a strange notoriety through the force of circumstances. A curious story is told, for instance, of a certain iron chest in Ireland, the facts relating to which are these. In the year 1654, Mr. John Bourne, chief trustee of the estate of John Mallet, of Enmore, fell sick at his house in Durley, when his life was pronounced by a physician to be in imminent danger. Within twenty-four hours, while the doctor and Mrs. Carlyle, a relative of Mr. Bourne, were sitting by his bedside, the doctor opened the curtains at the bedfoot to give him air when suddenly a great iron chest by the window, with three locks, in which chest were all the writings and title-deeds of Mr. Mallet's estate, began to open, lock by lock. The lid of the iron chest then lifted itself up and stood wide open. It is added that Mr. Bourne, who had not spoken for twenty-four hours, raised himself up in the bed, and looking at the chest, cried out, "'You say true, you say true. You are in the right. I will be with you by and by.' He then lay down apparently in an exhausted condition, and spoke no more. The chest lid fell again, and locked itself lock by lock, and within an hour afterwards Mr. Bourne expired. There is a story current of Lord Lovett, that, when he was born, a number of swords that hung up in the hall of the house leaped, of themselves, out of the scabbard. This circumstance often formed the topic of conversation, and, among his clan, was looked upon as an unfortunate omen. By a curious coincident, Lord Lovett was not only the last person beheaded on Tower Hill, but was the last person beheaded in this country, April ninth, 1747, an event which Walpole has thus described in one of his letters, telling us that he died extremely well, without passion, affectation, buffoonery, or timidity. He professed himself a Jansenist, made no speech, but sat down a little while in a chair on the scaffold, and talked to the people about him and Aubrey, relating a similar anecdote of a picture, tells us how Sir Walter Long's widow did make a solemn promise to him on his deathbed that she would not marry after his decease, but this she did not keep, for not long after one Sir Fox, a very beautiful young gentleman, did win her love, so that notwithstanding her promise aforesaid, she married him. They were at South Raffle, 
where the picture of Sir Walter hung over the parlour door, and on entering this room on their return from church, the string of the picture broke, and the picture, which was painted on wood, fell on the lady's shoulder and cracked in the fall. This made her ladyship reflect on her promise, and drew some tears from her eyes. End of chapter 11